Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. So this anti-Western axis is fighting the West on the territory of Ukraine and Israel. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Taras Kuzio, and we discuss Russia's war in Ukraine and all the latest developments there. And we also talk about the anti-Western axis that is at war with the West. I hope you find this episode interesting. Thank you for listening. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Dr. Taras Kuzio, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? Thank you for inviting me. I'm doing doing okay. I mean, you know, it's uh We're going into the winter of the second year of the war, so um, a lot of mixed feelings. Yeah, yeah. For those who are unfamiliar with you and your work, please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I've been covering the Soviet Union first in the 80s, and then since 1991, the former Soviet Union, primarily Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, um, for now going on more than 30 years. Um, I'm especially interested in things like nationalism, identity, ethnic conflict, uh, democratization, those kind of things, as opposed to hardcore international relations. But obviously, all of these questions are often interlinked, like especially in the case of Russia's uh, nationalism influencing its foreign policy and military policy. Um, I've written um, and edited uh, quite a few books um, since 2014, Vladimir Putin has not allowed me to put my feet up, as it were. Um, so uh, written about the, the yeah. crisis in 2014, the Russian first invasion, the annexation of Crimea, and then issues connecting, uh, dealing with hybrid warfare. I'm also, also, and I've just, uh, there's it's coming out soon, an edited collection, quite a large volume, about the influence of Russian information and policy and disinformation. Um, and a lot, of course, a lot of these, um, as you, anybody who listens to your podcast will know, a lot of this has its origins in the Soviet Union. Um, mm. you know, then it was mm. desinformatia, um, and, um, and so a lot of this, you know, hybrid warfare, then it was called active measures and, and issues like that. But the disinformation aspect is very interesting because of its impact. I, mm. I find it interesting for its impact on, on Western journalists and Western academics. How, how, how Russian propaganda um, topics like, for example, what's going on in Ukraine is Nazis coming to power, uh, civil war, uh, repression of Russian speakers. Basically, Kremlin talking points get repeated by uh, people in the West. Um, these can be called useful idiots. Um, some maybe are outright agents, but but that that you'd be surprised how that um, is continually coming to influence. 
particularly because we live, we seem to live in a world of conspiracy theorizing mm. um, with social media and things like that. And, um, and, and, you know, Russia keeps pumping out these conspiracy theories, which then get regurgitated in the, in the West. Yeah. There has been a distinct, and for me, it's interesting, fascinating to even watching Britain um, with, the, with the likes of Jeremy Corbyn on the far left and his academic friends. Uh, there has been a kind of, you know, today, if you're a Russophile or a Kremlinophile, you have to kind of camouflage it. In 2014, you didn't do that. You just openly were pro-Russian and anti-American, blaming NATO and the US. Mm. Today, you can't really do that because mm. of Russian war crimes, illegal yep. invasion, etc. Um, and so you have to pretend you're a peacemaker. <laughs> you have oh, to yes. so, so you propose things like territory for peace you know that let's let's stop the bloodshed um let's freeze the lines um and which, which basically gives this territory to russia you know it, it benefits russia it, it rewards russia um but they like indirectly are able to promote their pro-russian views so i i follow that that area very very much as well um and um but um Certainly, it's more and more the case, and I think this is an area that many Western um, kind of specialists, journalists, academics find difficult to look at, is the whole question of national identity fueling mm. this war. Uh, well, we, I mean, we can talk about that and how that pumps into the, the, the anti-Western axis of evil, but... Um, I think it's difficult for us living in the 21st century to get our heads around somebody like Putin who lives in the 19th century. Mm, um, mm, it's like, mm. hold on, <laughs> this, this, this discourse that he's coming out with is a bit outdated. But yeah, I mean, that's the era he lives in. Um, so and we have to deal with that. Yeah, it's interesting that I mean, I, I think we're still there's still many people who are living in that kind of um, late 90s post-history kind of mindset and I think some people are finding it difficult to adjust to the idea that nationalism and religion are still dominant forces in sort of world politics today. Yes they are I mean just look at India look at China it's not just Russia um, many parts of the world um, that's that's certainly true I mean in 1991 it was not obviously the end of history <laughs> mm. um, and um, we'll talk about it but um what we have now is uh, a war declared against the West by an anti-Western axis of evil. And, um, um, and so there are countries in the world who refuse to accept 1991 mm. was the end of history, i.e. the victory of Western liberal democracy. They refuse to refuse. And they're, they're two, the two places where they are fighting against the West are Israel and Ukraine. These two countries in the eyes of Iran and Russia respectively should be wiped from the face of the earth. Yeah, and maybe just leading in on, on what you've just been discussing there, it's a bit off topic a little bit, but maybe it is on topic. I'm, and I, you may or may not have insight on this, uh, I'm sure you do. I'm, I'm fascinated by um, how Russian propaganda is affecting academia today because with yeah, the yeah. terrible 7th of October attacks, we had a lot of young students sort of going out and ending up sort of supporting Hamas and saying Hamas are just um, victims of oppression and then they're a sort of justified force against Israel. And 
something just struck me. Something's gone terribly wrong in academia that's led to people kind of believing that. And I, and I can't get my head around it. And I'm trying to work out where this has sort of come from. Well, I think you're you're right to to point to this. I think that we're back to uh, the issue of uh, camouflage antisemitism, mm. um, which we always had on the sort of the far left of uh, political parties, not only Britain, elsewhere in in, in Europe. Um, the origins of this are really the anti-Zionist campaigns that the Soviet Union undertook in the in the sort of uh, late sixties, seventies, and early eighties where the KGB was actually training all these various different Palestinian groups. Yeah. Um, and um, um, for me, what is particularly indicative is that there's a, you know, if, if you are, if you're only concerned with, you know, and, and, and it's a good concern, if you're concerned with human rights and the human rights of Palestinians, fair enough. But actually, it's not the Israelis who are killing most Muslims in the world. It's mm. the Russians and Chinese. Mm. Um, and where are the protests against China locking up yeah. one million Muslims? I've not heard of a single protest. Yeah. Um, and this is also hypocritical on the part of Islamic states who still want to deal with China and ignore that. Syria, that regime in Syria, which is backed by Russia, has murdered over half a million um, yeah. Sunni Muslims. Where are the yeah. protests of these students? You know, where what? Far more of those have died than Palestinians at the hands of mm. Israelis. Mm. But there's so it makes me very suspicious that there's an underlying sort of this anti-Zionism, a la Jeremy Corbyn, is a kind of a camouflage anti-Semitism. Because if they were protesting about all of this um, human rights problems with you know Syria, China. Palestine, then fair enough, but they're not. Mm. They're not. Mm. It's just mm. Israel is their point of hatred. So there's something not quite right here. It makes me, you know, my antennae go up straight away. Yeah, my, mine have too, and I'm I'm trying to calibrate my antennae a little bit at the moment, <laughs> trying to work out what's what's going on, where it's sort of coming from. And on, I think yeah. it's one of the it's a, it's just a trendy thing, you know. With students, it's always trendiness, um, and it's trendy to be Palestinian to wear the headscarf and mm. the Palestinian um, the the headpiece um, and and such like. And I think it's partly that it used to be trendy with many American and other actors to be pro-Tibetan. Remember mm. back 10, 20 years ago, that's all been forgotten about now, even though the Chinese are committing genocide against the Tibetans. Mm. Um, so I think it's partly that, you know, students jump on a bandwagon, um, it's trendy, and then probably in about five years' time, we'll forget about it as well. Um, yeah. Oh, when I was a student, it was trendy to be anti-South Africa, anti-apartheid mm. regime. Um, so... Mm. I think these, you know, these things go up and down. Yeah, um, to yeah. be honest. Yes, indeed, indeed. Well, let's move on to Ukraine because that's sort of the key area I wanted to chat about today. Because I feel like with the Israel-Palestine situation, Ukraine's sort of slightly being pushed out of the media, and I think it's important that it stays in the media. So there's been a lot of talk in the Western press about Ukraine's counteroffensive not being as effective or fast enough for some people, um, and that there's a sort of stalemate between Russia and Ukraine. Yet Russia is still bombing Ukrainian cities. So I was wondering if you can give us a kind of brief update on the current situation in Ukraine, which is quite a big question, so I apologise. Yeah, it is a big question. I mean, firstly, when we talk about counter-offensives, mm. I mean, we shouldn't just limit ourselves 
to the military component in the southeast yeah. of Ukraine. Yeah. And there's a whole range of activities which are continuing, including in wintertime. I mean, just this morning, there was a report of a long-range Ukrainian missile striking the Trans-Siberian Railway near the Chinese border. Oh, wow. I mean, that's wow. one hell of a distance. Um, that is. Um, because, you know, I mean, what everybody tends to forget as well is that Ukraine had a massive military-industrial complex in the Soviet Union, which went, you know, into decline after 1991, but which is now being revived again. So Ukraine has the IT and the technical and other knowledge to to build the, that kind of kit. And you can see that with the innovative different aspects of what Ukraine's doing in the war. So the drones, the, 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 the missiles, the attacks on Crimea, the uh, uh, building of a bridgehead on the um, it's on the eastern side of the river Dnipro, um, which is sort of southwest uh, Kherson region. So if you if you're looking at southeast Ukraine, it's over that way. It's a way to kind of um, surround the Russian forces in the southeast. Um, assassination attempts, uh, um, uh, various sort of blowing up of collaborators, Russian uh, officers. All of that's going on. Um, so. So what we should be looking at as a whole as opposed to just the actual military component. The military component itself has gone uh, slower than expected. And what is bizarre about the criticism is that um, Western governments, particularly the Germans and the Americans, um, didn't give the Ukraine the kit that they should have very mm. quickly. Mm. Um, I mean, the the key moment when this would, this war would have been over if Western countries, especially the U.S. and Germany, had given Ukraine the military equipment after the, the rout of Russian forces in Kharkiv, which was in September 2022. Russian forces ran literally with their trousers around their ankles away from the battlefield. It was a complete rout of the Russian forces. If then they'd have fl flown in, brought in all this equipment, which they gave it over the next one or two years, if they had given it then, Russian army would have been defeated in Ukraine. The war would have been over. But they didn't. So it took forever for stuff to arrive in Ukraine. Um, and that allowed, in particular, the Russians about eight to nine months to build up three lines of fortifications and lay tens of thousands Hundred thousand. It's difficult. It's the, Ukraine is the most mined country in the world. Allowed the Russians to basically prepare for the offensive, and then the West didn't hardly send any uh, demining equipment. Didn't send the jets. Still haven't arrived. Yeah, um, that took forever to debate in the West. And as Western military experts will say, if a Western army or NATO army goes into battle, it has to have air superiority. Ukrainians don't have that because they don't have the jets yet. So Ukraine was handicapped from the start by, A, the Russians being allowed so much time to build up their fortifications and demining and not being given the equipment. And my, um, my, one of my main arguments is, is that is because you've got countries like the Germ Germany. Germany's kind of changed a bit now, but certainly the Biden administration, which um, wants Ukraine to not... It, the Biden administration's goals are to not have Ukraine be defeated, but it doesn't have the goal of defeating the Russian military. And that's the key difference between the British, for example, um, the British, the Scandinavians, the Poles, the Balts, the Czechs. They all openly say 
The British government always openly says mm. our goal is Russia's military defeat. Yeah. The Biden administration has never said that. Mm. Um, and and because, because it doesn't have that goal of Russia's military defeat, it's drip-fed military equipment to Ukraine. And it still denies stuff like, for example, the Atakums. The only ones that supplied to Ukraine were the ones that could fire cluster munitions, not the ones that could do medium-range missile attacks. And, and the arguments why that is, is because the Biden administration is very cautious, it's afraid of maybe Ru Russia moving to nuclear escalation, of other things such as Russian military defeat leading to the disintegration of the Russian Federation, chaos, this kind of thing. It reminds me very much, and I certainly remember this, of the same discussions back in 1990-91, when the USSR was kind of, it was moving towards this integration. And uh, George Bush Sr., uh, then the US president, came to Kiev in July of 1991 and gave what was nicknamed his Chicken Kiev speech, <laughs> um, where he told the Ukrainian parliament, you should not aim for independence. Because what they were afraid of, um, you know, the US, the, the US was fighting the Soviet Union for, for decades through CIA, covert, and other, other means. And then when the USSR was about to disintegrate, they went, oh my God, you know, this is going to be a nuclear Yugoslavia. Um, and so, of course, the Ukrainians ignored George Bush's comments in Kiev because uh, they declared independence the month after. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the same, same kind of rationale um, with, the, with the Biden team now. And that drip-drip approach um, means that they are kind of in this middle ground between a more British hawkish approach, which is give the Ukrainians everything they need and then we'll defeat the Russians. And then the other extreme would be, no, 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 stop the war, just trade land for peace, as it were. But the Biden administration's in the middle and, um, and it keeps getting criticized for not really having uh, the goal. So the Republicans in the US, I think, do have a point even the populists, uh, the Trumpite populists, they do have a point when they say the Biden administration has never outlined what its end goal is. The British have outlined it, the Scandinavians, the Poles, they've outlined it. Ukraine's military victory, Russia's military defeat. The Biden administration only goes for the Ukrainian side, not the Russian side. And that, that leads to a kind of a, a wishy-washy uh, foreign policy toward, towards this conflict. Uh, and it means that Ukrainians are going to be suffering a very long drawn out war now. Yeah. Instead of the war ending very quickly by end of 2023, it's now going to drag on for years. It means higher Ukrainian military and civilian casualties and more destruction, more casualties on the Russian side as well, as opposed to the war ending, I think, very quickly, which it could have done if the Russians weren't allowed to settle in and build those fortifications. Yeah, yeah. A couple of sub questions. Um, what is the sort of situation at the moment in the Black Sea and Crimea? Well, this is going to be something that military historians are going to be writing about for decades or years to come. How <laughs> <Wow. laughs> a country without a navy could mm. destroy a country's another country's navy. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Russian Black Sea Fleet now is a non-entity. I mean, it's not a military uh, entity anymore. It's had to move most of its best ships out of Sevastopol towards... Novorossiysk, but Novorossiysk, which is sort of northwest Caucasus, 
uh, Russian, Russian Northwest Caucasus is not big enough to hold all of these ships. So they are sitting ducks, as it were. I mean, the Ukrainians have, have destroyed a huge number of, of very expensive um, Russian, um, Russian naval vessels, including a submarine even, um, and, and the actual repair facilities, repair docking facilities where these ships were based. Um, so that and and they prevented the Russians using that Black Sea fleet to block Ukraine grain exports, which they yep. were doing as well. And so a combination of the Ukrainians demolishing the Black Sea fleet using a variety of means, missiles, the British uh, British missiles, French missiles, and other other means, Ukrainian ones as well. The the first ship which was destroyed was the flagship of the Black Sea fleet, the Moskva uh, and Makarov. Um, and they were destroyed by Ukrainian missiles, so Neptune missiles. So with a combination of, of the Black Sea Fleet being out of action and ne- uh, NATO member countries like Bulgaria and Romania allowing Ukraine to sail in their territorial waters along the coast um, has, has, has led to Ukraine resuming, not completely, but a huge amount of its grain exports. And those go to developing countries in Africa and elsewhere. So um, you, that's been a big success story, and that's been, I think, quite widely written about uh, in the West. And it will be certainly military academies in, the, in NATO countries will be studying that for years to come, um, because we have a, a new military environment where a drone or, or that costs thousands of pounds can destroy a Russian tank or whatever, which can which can cost yeah. over a hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah. And the same with a missile that can cost X amount can destroy ships which are cost hundreds of millions, you know, to build. So um, certainly that's uh, been one of Ukraine's brightest points. But the more Ukrainian forces move south, the more the, the Black Sea Fleet and um, and um, and its vessels come into 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 target. One of the biggest, I think, shocks to the Russians was the destruction of the Black Sea Fleet headquarters. Mm. And and they obviously had incredible intelligence, the Ukrainians, because um, in, in, inside intelligence, because it, they hit it at a time of a meeting of the Black Sea Fleet commanders. And so you know, we don't know how many were killed, but. Something like ten to fifteen senior officers were were killed in that attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No intelligence is so important. These things. Um, there was a piece in Time magazine not long ago about sort of President Zelensky, and it was kind of um, painting a picture of a man who's understandably exhausted. Okay. Um, I, I, do you have any insight on how he's sort of doing? And also, there's sort of calls from the American right for elections in Ukraine next year. And does that seem realistic and necessary? Well, no. I mean, according to Ukrainian uh, constitution, Ukrainian law, uh, elections can't be held when you have a state of emergency, mm, and the mm. state of emergency exists when the country's at war. Um, so elections are not simply possible. And they're also not, not possible because there are millions of people, millions of Ukrainians living abroad um, who fled last year. Um, so Ireland and Britain both have sort of 150,000 each, for example, mm. Ukrainians. So it's not it's not elections won't take place. I mean that's those are just excuses. I think that um, uh, back in 2019, when there were Ukrainian presidential elections, I was more a, 
uh, a supporter of Petro Poroshenko, the uh, incumbent president, then and I thought Zelensky was was a bit wet behind the ears. He was sort of you know he had no political experience. Um, but now, um, since the invasion, um, I think Zelensky and not Poroshenko was the right man for the job. I mean, he has shown himself, and he will go into into history as Ukraine's Winston Churchill. There's simply no question about that. Um, when the Russians invaded in February 2022, Zelensky did not run away from Kiev. When Prigozhin launched his coup attempt on Moscow, Putin did run away from Moscow, and we, he wasn't seen. So, um, so he's, he's shown himself to be a leader. The fact that he's frustrated, the fact that he sometimes gets things wrong and um, he can be depressed. I mean, come on. I, I, I would. <laughs> I, I, are, you, are you surprised? I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm surprised that he can do this a day in, day out. Um, every day he gives a speech to the Ukrainians, which is, you know, every evening. And he has to keep the morale of the, of the country. The so, soldiers on the front line are looking to him. So he can't show his true emotions. Um, and, and you can see that the cruelties and the war crimes committed by the Russians um, have, a, have an effect on him as they have an effect on anybody. So I, I'm not surprised that, um, that this war is going to have an imp- a personal impact on him. But um, um, I'll say something. I would love to shake the hand of his speechwriter because his speeches given in different parts of the world have been absolutely superb. Um, and um, his experience in the field of communications, TV, PR, has worked to Ukraine's benefit. Um, so he's put his foot in it a few times um, um, where I think he criticism that he said publicly should have been said behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how things are done. But, you know, come on, give him, give the guy a break. Indeed, um, indeed. We would all break. We would all be in that condition, you know, if we were oh, leading yeah. a country um, in this kind of brutal war. Yeah, yeah, indeed. There's a lot of weight on that man's shoulders right now. There is, there is, yeah. The Henry Jackson Society have written a new paper titled Russia and the Anti-Western Axis Must Be Militarily Defeated. Can you talk to us about the anti-Western axis that you identify in the paper and how that relates to the war in Ukraine? Yeah, um, this was written before the October 7th Hamas attack on, mm. on Israel. And then, and then it was, um, that was uh, added to it, as it were. But it, it wasn't difficult to add to it because it was in the same genre. Mm. Um, I think that the West and the West is not united on this war. There are two groups of countries. There are the Hawks and the Doves. And the Hawks are, as I've mentioned, the British, the four Scandinavian countries, three Baltic countries, Poland, um, Romania, and the Czech Republic. Um, those countries uh, openly all say they want Russia's military defeat. And then you have... Um, the French, who Macron keeps changing, but the French to a great degree, the Germans, Schultz in particular, um, and certainly Biden, who have never said that they want Russia's military defeat, and they just said they want Ukraine not to be defeated. So they've kind of, you know, they they don't realize you can't be half pregnant. You're either pregnant or not, and <laughs> they've got one foot in and one foot out, as it were. Whereas 
these other more hawkish countries are openly saying Ukraine's military victory, Russia's military defeat. Um, and the reasons for the doves are the kind of things we've already talked about, the fear of nuclear escalation, Russian disintegration. In the case of Scholz, I think it's just because of his left-wing politics, Ger German relations with Russia, uh, fear, you know, that kind of sympathetic ties to Russia. Um, same probably with France, although, as I say, Macron seems to have changed. Um, France, for the first time now, supports Ukraine's membership of NATO, which is, was never the case before. Mm -hmm. So you've got these two groups of countries, and my argument was that um, the the doves should actually align with the hawks um, because you're not going to have a consistent Western policy um, as to what how this war should mm. end mm. Um, unless you come out openly and say that Russia's military defeat is your goal. Um, because these, these different um, fears, I think, are exaggerated. I mean, the fear, for example, of nuclear escalation. Firstly, it was actually the Chinese who played a very positive role here in telling Putin to stop um, stop talking about the threat of using nuclear weapons. I mean, I think it was the Americans through the Chinese who yeah. were who who got them to do that. Um, it's not in the interests of the China of China that there would be some nuclear kind of conflagration. Mm -hmm. um, if, and and military experts like Lawrence Friedman. Friedman, have, when they've dis dissected this question, they've said that Russia using tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield would not give it a military advantage. It would also, you can't tell where the radiation is going. So you could kill your troops as much as Ukrainian. Um, and, you know, the state of the Russian army, which is abysmal, they haven't got any um, uniforms that can be used in the event of using nuclear weapons, specialist, specialist uniforms that will be used. So it's it's very it's not something that's very likely to happen. Mm -hmm. Russia's disintegration, I think that again is 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 you know is exaggerated. I mean, Russia, the Russian Federation is a kind of a mini empire. Uh, the Ru ethnic Russians make up about seventy percent of the population, thirty percent minorities. There is growing um, dis uh, discontent amongst the national minorities. Um, for their over-proportional use in the war in Ukraine. There seems to be a lot of uh, Dagestanis, Tatars, Chechens, and other non-Russian minorities from Russia fighting in Ukraine. And I think that's deliberately done by, by Putin. But the idea that you know these, these small entities in Russia, these small autonomous republics, could become independent states is, I think, fanciful. I mean, the worst, I think, that could happen would be Russia would be returning to uh, its dysfunctional state as it was in the 1990s under Boris Yeltsin. So a kind of, you know, um, a failed state, not not a disintegrate. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be disintegrating like the Soviet Union. It'd be more like a kind of a, a very weak central government and very a very dysfunctional kind of um, state as in the 1990s. So I think these those are exaggerated. I think in the case of Biden, it's a product that he was part of the Obama team. And Obama was was you know if there's somebody that's betrayed a lot of a lot of peoples it's Obama, mm. the Georgians in 2008, the Syrians in 2012. Does everybody remember Obama's red lines? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> um, so, and yeah. then the Ukraines in 2014. Um, uh, what 
what again, what people forget because of their ideological preferences is that Obama vetoed the sending of weapons to Ukraine after 2014. Mm, mm, mm. Donald Trump, who I don't like, but Donald Trump did not veto the sending of weapons to Ukraine. Donald Trump imposed sanctions on Nord Stream 2, the German-Russian gas pipeline. Biden, when he came to power in 2020, lifted those sanctions. Mm. So Biden comes from that Obama team, which is actually quite moderate. So it's not really, when we look at American politics, it's not a question of Democrats, Republicans. There are differences between within both parties. Mm. Um, mm. I think Bill Clinton would be far more hawkish on this war if he was president than, say, Obama-Biden. So that's the sort of the hawks and doves. On the, on the anti-Western axis, mm. this, um, I've been joking on Twitter for at least a year that Israeli intelligence must be on extended vacation. <laughs> yeah, and sadly they're paying for it now. Well, they must be paying for it now. How could you not see this coming, for Christ's sake? The Iranians and the Russians have been at military allies since the summer of 2022. Yeah. There's no such thing as a free lunch. The, the Iranians are giving stuff to the Russians, and the Russians are giving stuff to the Iranians. And do they not realize the Russians would, wouldn't give a damn about actually helping the Iranians to build a nuclear bomb? Mm. And so that military cooperation then morphs into a larger one to, with North Korea. Mm. Mm. The Chinese are kind of on the sidelines. They're not, I don't think... Uh, jumping on the bandwagon yet. I think that they are far more cautious and they're just waiting to see how this pans out. But what we have is, in effect, um, Russia now, Russia has completely ditched its very close relationship with Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel. There was a very close personal relationship between Putin and Netanyahu because Netanyahu played to that populist nationalist right uh, in Europe, he was close to Orban in Hungary, to Trump and mm. to Putin. Um, and also, there's a, the large Russian Jewish uh, community inside Israel was actually very pro-Putin, ironically. Um, I'm not sure what they still are. Um, and so there are posters you can find on the internet from the last Israeli elections with where Netanyahu's bragging about being a close buddy with Putin. Mm. Um, and that was the reason... Well, that's one of the main reasons why Israel has refused to help Ukraine in this war. Mm. Even though even though Ukraine has a Jewish president yeah. and it has the most successful Jewish revival of any country in Europe. And I've been to these, these, these places uh, where, where this revival has taken place. So uh, Zelensky, that's another reason for him to be very depressed. His family was murdered in the Holocaust in World War II. Yeah. Um, he survived because his grandfather was in the Soviet army. He wasn't at home when the Nazis came. Mm. Um, and, and to have yeah. Israel not support him, even to send, we're not talking about sending military equipment, uh, offensive equipment, but to even not willing to send defensive equipment like the Iron Dome to protect Ukraine from the Russian attack, yeah. missile attacks. Um, Netanyahu refused. Um, he was in bed. He, they ignored this uh, close Russian-Iranian uh, alliance. Now Russia is openly anti-Israeli, openly supporting Iran and Hamas. Putin uses this anti-colonialist rhetoric. You know, it's ridiculous that Russia's pretending it was never an empire. 
Mm. <laughs> and um, yeah. you know that it's the West who were the bad guys with their empires. We were never the bad guys. I mean, give me a break. Well, a lot of the, the that's been a very popular idea on the left, even during the Cold War, that Russia was not an imperial power. I know, I know, and <laughs> um, and and it just simply doesn't fit the facts. Mm. I mean, Putin is using that Soviet legacy of anti-colonialism yeah. towards the developing world. Um, but all it really boils down to is anti-Americanism. It's not, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, pro-Russianism. It's it's pro. It's anti-Americanism. You know, um, how can you explain Jeremy Corbyn um, being pro-Russian when the Russian Putin's regime is a mafia state? Mm. Corbyn's not supporting that. He's doing it because he's anti-American. Yeah, and it's the anti-Americanism which is driving that. So I think what we've got now, whether Netanyahu accepts it or not is irrelevant because the buck stops this in biggest intelligence failure since the Yom Kippur War mm. of 1973 the buck stops at Netanyahu um, because he's the one who's been, who must have been telling the Israeli intelligence service to go on extended vacation, there's no problem with this Iranian-Russian yeah. corporation. Well there obviously was a problem um, and um, what, what we have is Iran in the case of Israel, Russia in the case of Ukraine, Russia and Iran want to eradicate, erase two countries from the face of the earth, Israel mm. and Ukraine. This anti-Western axis, that's their goal. They see these two countries, Ukraine and Israel, as interlopers. They shouldn't exist. They're in, they're in places where it should be Russian culture, identity, or yeah. Palestinian, Arab, whatever. Um, so it's not a question. Again, we're not talking about the creation of two states, Palestinian and Israel. They want to erase Israel from the map. And just as Russia wants to erase Ukraine. So this anti-Western axis is fighting the West on the territory of Ukraine and Israel. It's to me, it's just blatantly obvious that that's the case. Mm. I think that many Western countries find it difficult to accept that because there are just very, very major conclusions once mm. you accept that. It means that de facto we're at war and we are at war. The, the, the Russians and the Iranians and the North Koreans um, have long thought that they're at war with the West. Mm. It's just that we've been going, no, come on, give it, come yeah, on, yeah. come on, let's be friends, come on. Here's a bit here's a bit more money or here's another business deal or whatever, you know. But but that's a reality. And the war in Ukraine has has kind of brought that to to the front, as it were, mm. that this is a war against the West. The the Russians and the Iranians don't even deny it. Um, that they want to destroy the world that was created after 1945 and replace it with this kind of vague multipolar system, which means that there's no international legal order and uh, autocracies can do what the hell they want. I mean, we'll, we'll be living in the jungle, we're back to the jungle. It'll be back to the sort of, I don't know, pre, pre-1914 or interwar era, uh, back to that. And, and so the war in Ukraine and Israel is existential for both of those countries mm. on the one hand, because mm. they uh, enemies want to erase them, but it's also existential for us in the West. If Ukraine and Israel are defeated, then autocracies have won the day. I mean, I don't see how the West can 
can exist as a as it has existed since 1945 if uh, if if there's a defeat so the anti western axis of evil exists whether we like it or not and um this should bring israel and ukraine closer together hopefully yeah. um yeah yeah um but probably that would require an, an election in israel to get rid of netanyahu um, mm. we, we shall mm. see how that how that pans out um but but some israelis are already openly blaming saying russia should will, will russia will be regret this support mm. for hamas and mm. um, and iran no indeed indeed i think i think a lot of people underestimate the importance of of the war in ukraine um you know i i've like you've just pretty much said it's the front line on the war against the west mm-hmm. um and i think there's a lot of um, commentators on the far left and the far right. The far right seem to, you know, support Putin because he presents himself as the savior of the white Christian world. And right. then you've got the far left who are harking back to a rose-tinted view of Russia from the Cold War or something. Yeah. Um, and and I was fascinated by how some of the sort of talking points on the internet over the years that downplay the war in Ukraine, or either coming from this sort of far left or far right perspective, I find that really interesting. I think that the far right is now um, fractured. Mm. Um, I don't think it's as um, as united on on this question as it maybe was. I mean, I'm, I'm excluding the sort of you know the white skinhead kind of uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mar- marginal, but the the regular populist nationalist parties are not all pro-Russian um, as they maybe were ten five years ago. Um, for, I mean, for example, in Scandinavia, um, where you've got a consensus emerged straight after the invasion of Ukraine in Sweden and Finland uh, for joining NATO, mm. including am- amongst populist nationalist parties. Poland has a populist, had a populist nationalist party in power, and they were very pro-Ukrainian, very anti-Russian. Um, Italy, the same. So I, it, it depends which, which part of... Um, and, you know, in the case of Britain, look, I mean... Um, we had Brexit. Mm. Brexit uh, was very dominant in the Conservative Party, but that has not affected Britain's attitude towards this war. Um, it hasn't affected, um, hasn't, it hasn't led to pro-Russianism on the on the on the British, uh, at least mainstream right, shall we say? No, no. Um, and um, so I think um, I would say it's more on the left than on the right. Um, but um, going back to my earlier point, they have to be more camouflaged today than they were in 2014. Because to come out openly now and support Russia, I mean, straight away, people are going to say, what about the war crimes? What about the deportation of children, etc.? This is a legal war, etc., etc. So um, they had their heyday certainly in 2014, and I followed them very closely. Um, but now, now, I think they... They're, they're pretty pretty marginal marginal figures um, now. Yeah, yeah. What can the West be doing now to help Ukraine? And should Western policymakers be afraid of a military defeat of Russia? If we look, if we think of three scenarios, I mean, you know, three basic scenarios: uh, Russia's military defeat, yeah. Ukraine's military defeat, or some kind of in between situation. Call it frozen, or yeah. it's not really frozen, but stalemate um, kind of situation. I think the only scenarios that are realistic are either Russia's military defeat or stalemate. I just can't see that Russia would have the resources and and the manpower to capture the whole of Ukraine. That's still Putin's goal. Um, He hasn't changed his goals at all. But but to uh, change the structure of the Russian state, 
which is a mafia. It's been called a mafia state since at least 2010. Uh, listeners can find uh, the first time Russia was called a mafia country back in 2010 on uh, WikiLeaks. Mm. Um, it was an American diplomatic uh, cable. So Russia's been called a mafia state for 13 years. Um, to change that would take, you know, yeah. decades. Yeah. Um, and it's the same with the Russian army. The Russian army is just a reflection, and the Russian security forces mm. are just a reflection of that mm. mafia state. Mm. I mean, you can see that every day on social media, the state of the Russian army in Ukraine. The joke going around Ukraine is that Russia used to be the second best army in the world. <laughs> then it became the second best army in Ukraine. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then with Prigozhin's rebellion, it was the second best army in Russia. <laughs> um, so um, that can't change overnight. Mm. I mean, mm. it's simply impossible. That means that uh, a Russian military defeat of Ukraine is simply not, I don't think, a realistic scenario. But if we're looking at these other two. The West needs to, um, or particularly, I think, in the, the case of the U.S. Um, and the Germans, change its attitude towards this potential middle ground, the stalemate ground. The Germans have stepped up. Mm. Um, they are now the second biggest providers of military equipment to Ukraine. It was the British, and now it's the Germans. I think um, I think the British have given quite a lot. Um, but we have a strange situation in Britain that the conservative governments in power have actually reduced the power of the British army yeah. um, in, 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 in their time in office, which is not what we think of when we think of conservative governments. No, no. Usually we blame that on the Labour Party, yeah. but, but it, it's actually been meant. So I think the British gave a huge amount and they were like front runners in certain areas like missiles and tanks. But the Germans have taken second place. The Germans are still holding back on one big area, their version of medium-range missiles called the Taurus missile. Um, and, and I think that's just a fear of... Um, Ukraine's using that. Ukraine launches a lot of attacks inside Russia. And yeah. I think the Germans are afraid of that being used. But I mean, I'm sure they could do a, a, a quiet deal that Ukraine said, we won't use this inside Russia, only in Crimea. What Vladimir Putin is looking and waiting for is the American elections. And I think a lot of people are concerned about a potential Trump victory. I'm a bit cautious, not because I'm a fan of Trump, but because going back to the Trump presidency, he actually was better for Ukraine than Obama. Really? And, ev and everybody kind of forgets that because they don't like Trump. So they always paint him as this sort of the black, you know, in, in, in negative terms. Uh, Trump, Trump imposed, as I mentioned, Trump imposed sanctions on Nord Stream 2. And he actually did not veto the sending of weapons to Ukraine. Mm. And those weapons, they weren't heavy weapons. Because Americans, like most Western governments, assumed that Russia would be very quickly able to uh, defeat Ukraine. That was the initial view. Um, but those javelins and stingers and then the British end-laws were crucial at the beginning of the invasion to demolish uh, Russian military columns. Mm. Um, so, uh, um, But what they're concerned about is this rise, of, of obviously, of this populist nationalist wing. I think that I'm a bit more um, circumvent. I don't think it's going to be so bad because I think the arguments are so blatantly on continuing supporting Ukraine that those arguments will eventually get through. And there are three, three kind of big arguments here. Firstly, 
what we've talked about, the anti-Western axis. You can't, whether you like it or not, separate the conflict with Israel and the mm. conflict with Ukraine now. These are all mm. interconnected now. Mm. Um, and, and, and hence Biden's attempt to, um, to organize um, uh, military aid to both Israel and Ukraine at the same time. Secondly, there's also a connection to Taiwan, again, whether you like it or not. Another big area important to the Republican right in the U.S. Um, weakness by the West in Ukraine sends a signal uh, to other countries, particularly to the Chinese. For example, if the Russians had, been, had quickly defeated the Ukrainians, Taiwan would have been under threat. Mm. The, the Chinese have backed off because they are also under the illusions that the West was weak, divided, and unlikely to support Ukraine. That was the, the view of both the Chinese and the Russians at the time of the invasion of Ukraine. They were wrong about the West. Um, and, and hence, the Chinese, I think, have backed off from a potential uh, th military threat to Taiwan for the time being. Um, but if the West shows weakness in Ukraine, that will send a signal to, to China that that the West won't do anything if it does something against yeah. Taiwan. Yeah. So that's the second point. The third point is that, I mean, I mean, I'm, what is surprising is the Biden administration has been so slow in defending its support for Ukraine. Why? Firstly, this is this is pittance. What the Americans are sending is a pittance. It's five percent of the American military budget. Mm. Americans have spent five percent of their military budget, have destroyed the Russian army. Um, as a real serious military force, without a single American soldier being killed. I mean, how is that not a great investment? Mm. Come on. Mm. And secondly, and most, and finally, the Biden administration is doing this now. Um, key American states like Pennsylvania, Nebraska, Arizona, Texas have been getting massive military orders from yeah. the U.S. government to make this these shells and this military equipment to send to Ukraine. Mm. So the, it's not as though Biden t gives a bag of money to Zelensky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that money doesn't go to Ukraine. It goes to producing military equipment, which then goes to Ukraine. So it creates yeah. jobs. Yeah. It creates, you know, economic upturn in key states. And actually, ironically, many of those states where that U.S. government money is going for that military equipment are states where you have these Trumpite, Populists mm. uh, voting against Ukrainian aid. Yeah. Um, um, so I, I I think that eventually those arguments will come across, and and I don't think it's going to be as bad um, as um, as another. Oh, another final factor, which mm. is something that's not talked about enough, is that the EU has actually stepped forward in an incredible way. Yeah. The EU now provides far more financial economic aid to Ukraine than the US. Mm. Um, and we, should, we shouldn't just focus on the military side because you, Ukraine government to pay things like social welfare, pensions, um, state uh, wages for state officials um, needs about $5 billion uh, a month. That's been funded by the West, primarily by the EU. So the EU has come, come up. The EU is also, for the first time in its history, uh, giving military orders to countries to produce uh, shells and other military equipment to send to Ukraine. The EU isn't um, providing as much military aid as the US, but it's certainly growing. Um, and that's good. I mean, because remember, the arguments were always on by the Americans. Oh, the Europeans are always lagging. They, they, mm -hmm. never, they never 
providing enough support for NATO. They're always, you know, behind. Germany, for the first time now, is going to be spending more than 2% of GDP on, on defense, um, which has been a NATO requirement for, for a long time. So I, I think that all of those areas, I'm not that uh, pessimistic, but, um, but certainly we're in this kind of winter lull um, where hardcore military activity probably won't, won't take place. It'll be more this hybrid war, assassinations, drone attacks, <laughs> missile attacks, this kind of um, activity will take more. Uh, but let's keep a keep a continuing watch on the Ukrainian bridgehead on the Dnipro River because if yeah. that, as it does seem to be, expands, the Russians are in um, are dangerously open to being surrounded. Yeah, yeah. One last question. Since we last spoke, there's been quite a few dramatic incidents in Russia. We've had that failed mutiny by Prigozhin and then his dramatic death about a month later. And things were looking quite dicey for Putin. So um, what is his position like at the moment? Is he as in control as he appears? Or do you think we may see another challenge to his power? Um, the Prigozhin um, mutiny or whatever it, you want, um, coup or whatever you want to call it, was, I think, Experts are still trying to dissect it and trying mm. to understand it. Because why did he suddenly stop as he was driving to Moscow? Um, it was basically an open road. It was hilarious to see how so many uh, Russian military commanders and commanders of the National Guard, which are supposed to deal with internal dissent, um, suddenly checked themselves into clinics with illnesses. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. uh, they didn't... You know, this is a typical kind of Soviet approach. Same thing happened in August 91 when there was a coup. That they, what they do is they wait on the sidelines to see who wins. Mm. And then they join the victors. Yeah. That must be a terrible sign to Putin that they didn't rush to support him. They didn't rush to help him. It, it's a very mixed picture. I mean, opinion polls um, and, and surveys show that most Russians continue to support the war. But but within that support, what we have, say, for example, 70% support, what we have within that is 20% hardcore um, nationalist support and 50% of this kind of wavering. Um, so, for example, if there was another rebellion like Prigozhin, um, as we saw when Prigozhin took over the Rostov-on-Don and a few other Russian cities, people came out on the streets and cheered them. Mm. They didn't cheer the soldiers trying to attack Prigozhin. So it's it's very soft support. So if that doesn't look good for for the for uh, for Putin's regime, it's a very brittle kind of regime in that sense. In terms of um how strong is his regime, it's it's very difficult to say. I mm. think that mm. his big concern is to get through the March 24 presidential elections. Of course he's going to win, yeah. win them. There's no <laughs> question about that. Um, and um, yeah. and what he doesn't want, and I think this is a wasted opportunity in the part of the West, what he doesn't want is um, some major military defeat before that. Mm. Um, and, um, and, and I'm sure the Ukrainians are thinking up, particularly the Ukrainian intelligence services are thinking up various ways that they can screw up uh, those Russian elections yes some nice surprises for example major attacks on the russian uh, bridge between mm. kerch and uh, and crimea yeah so um so we'll see on that um it is rather surprising 
and you would think there would be eventually a tipping point um, of how many Russian soldiers are dying. Mm. I mean, we're, we're talking about in that Abdiivka, uh, Donetsk area, um, the, the British Ministry of Defense, um, Defense Intelligence, just um, a few days ago, have been talking about the highest ever recorded deaths in a day of 1,000 yeah. a day. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge number. That is, that is huge. And it's bizarre to watch on social media often Russian soldiers complaining. Their officers treat them like, like muck, like something you wipe off your shoe. Um, they don't have enough equipment. Um, they, they, they're not treated well in terms of food supplies and others. They're sent in as meat, as what well, they call them meat waves or yeah. cannon fodder waves, just, just sent in, um, as it were, without any bothering about how many, people, how many of them get killed. And yet they're still willing to do that. Mm. I think that eventually there's going to be a tipping point where they're going to say, no, this has gone too far. And we are already talking about 300,000 killed and wounded, 300,000 mm. casualties mm. in less than That's two years. Yeah. Um, Western governments, including the British Ministry of Defense, always thought the Ukrainians were exaggerating, but they've now yeah. caught up with the, and yeah. they believe the Ukrainian um, estimates now. That's a huge number. To compare, um, in, in Afghanistan, which was a war the Soviet Union was in for 10 years, they had 50,000 casualties, deaths and, and wounded. 50,000 over 10 years. This is 300,000 in less than two years. Yeah, yeah. You would think that that eventually, will, will, you know, there will be a point where Russians will say, enough. When that point happens, who knows? It's reminiscent of World War One, isn't it? And the uh, invention of the machine gun and people still yeah. charging of horses. Yes, 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 yeah. And uh, or or the yeah charging on the horseback towards tanks and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for all your insight today. Where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? I think the best way is just um, just search for my name under Google. Um, most of my you'll find all the articles that I've written there. Um, and, um, and they can always contact me if need be through, through you, through the, through the podcast as well, if they want something specifically, um, often, for example, academic articles, which have to be downloaded from libraries. I can help with that as well. Thank you for joining me today. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 